Hello, all you oysters out there, and hello from Toronto. I'm actually in the Toronto airport right now, and found a nice little secluded corner to record this. It's died down a little bit, so hopefully it's a little less noisy than it was a little bit before, but, but you do what you gotta do, you know? This marks the end of Phase 5 of the trip to Germany, with Iceland next. I can't believe this is already here, and this is what's happening. This is a huge vacation within itself, and I haven't even landed in Germany yet. So keep up to date with me on what's going on and all my travels on Instagram at Nathan.Oyster. Say hi if you want. That's the best place to find me, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Oyster World. Oyster World. Radio. Hello, Oysters, and welcome to another episode of Oyster World Radio, where we broaden our perspectives by meeting new people. Every single one of us has a story to tell, so for an hour, let's leave our personal bubbles and walk in someone else's shoes. There are so many different ways to live this life, and it's my job to find those ways and bring them to you. I'm Nathan Lieberman, and in this episode, I interview a lawyer. Well, not a lawyer that you would typically expect. Angie Plummer is the executive director at CRIS, which is short for the Community Refugee Immigration Services in Columbus, Ohio. She does fascinating work helping refugees get the legal support they need to get to safety while also helping the Columbus refugee population get settled, adapt to a new language, a new education system, and overall culture. So how the heck did Angie get to where she is? Well, stay tuned and find out. So this is my conversation with Angie Plummer. Angie, thank you for taking the time to come on Oyster World Radio. I'm excited about this episode and talking to you because you are a major piece of an organization in Columbus called Chris. And let's get started. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. I know. It's um, it's this, I, I'm kind of ashamed I haven't heard of this great organization until my roommate, Alex participated in it, and he had an, a, an amazing experience helping some some Somali kids that were playing soccer for this Columbus Crew organization, and it really changed his life. But for the listeners out there that don't really know what Chris is, can you give them a little bit of a background? Yeah, sure. Chris is a local organization that does refugee resettlement work, which means bringing people directly from overseas and helping them right from the airport to getting into housing, finding employment, getting uh, kids enrolled in school, all those things that need to happen in those first 90 days. Uh, after that, we have programs that help prepare them for the U.S. workforce, teach English, um, immigration legal services, which is how I got involved initially, uh, and then programs that work with both ends of the age spectrum, the elderly refugees, because they have you know, a real tougher time with their adjustment. And then on the other end with families and children and, you know, helping detect developmental delays and parenting classes. Um, we have a new mentorship program that really tries to connect community members with refugee youth um, and victims of crime, a whole host of social service programs. So you guys do a lot of really great things. And that's why I'm so surprised that I haven't heard about this before. So this one of the reasons I really want to talk to you is I really want to figure out how the heck you got here. Like, how did you get to this position 
and were able to find something as fulfilling as um, helping grow and develop Chris. So let's dive into you a little bit and take it all the way back to where it originally began. Where where did you grow up and what area did you grow up and what was a day in the life of, of Angie Plummer? Yeah, so I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. It was your probably typical Midwestern suburban life. I had the requisite piano lessons and swim lessons <laughs> and you know my dad was the softball coach and um, it was I think one unique aspect to my particular high school was the fact it was near Wright-Patterson Air Force Base so it was a really diverse student body because of the base um, so I you know in looking back and wondering how your life is shaped I think that had some um, influence is just from an early age being exposed to, you know, a pretty diverse student pools. Which is awesome, which is really, really important to, I wish my school was a little bit more diverse growing up. I didn't really get exposed to that until I went to OSU. But one of the questions that really popped out of my mind is how is your dad as a softball coach? Because oh my, my gosh! My my dad coached all of my baseball games, so I my gotta, dad was I an intense. He, he was a pretty intense guy. Yeah, he was an intense guy. Was yeah, he the guy just rolling people past third base, like the very emphatic third base coach? Oh yeah, he he was that guy. He was loud and, but he loved it. And it was you know I also look back and think how lucky I was that he was so involved. So how old were you at the time? Probably middle school. He was a kind of, yeah, I I can't remember if he coached t-ball, but I played from the time I was a little kid. And he coached my brother's soccer teams. And, yeah, he was loud and intense, but um, but involved. Yeah, oh, yeah, I bet you were pretty good at the time. Was that the time when you are like, stop embarrassing me in front of my friends? I definitely went through this phase, too. Oh, oh, yeah, my kids are in that phase right now, so I, I have sympathy, yeah. <laughs> are, you, are you coaching <laughs> them? Are you I'm not, but I am coach? so embarrassing. I can tell you that. <laughs> they could tell you that. Oh, please, I, I used, please explain. I used to be cool. I used to be cool, but I don't know what happened. Now I'm, I'm what do so. You, mean you used to be cool. What happened? Like, what did happen? What happened? <laughs> well, they became 13 and 15. I think that's what happened. I think yeah. Then just normally, well, in the teenagers' eyes, they parents just become everything yeah. that's against fun and happiness in the world for like five years so you're do, like right in the you, middle of the teenage phase mom sure. why do you have to talk to everyone you always have to say hi to everyone you know somebody everywhere we go and you're like that's a problem I'm just i know to be social come so on like a good example it's because you know what it is they think you are cool they just don't want to show it yet they'll wise right. up we'll go with that up. <laughs> so we <laughs> You grew up in Dayton. You had the. Do you still play piano? No, no. I, say, I don't either. I did the whole music thing too. I didn't. I don't play either. Not at all. Um, I think I have a few songs that are probably programmed in that I could still play. You know, Stairway to Heaven or something like that. Um, if you can play Stairway to Heaven still, then good lord, you're on top of it. I think I got uh, Jingle Bells. <laughs> or, or chops. <laughs> if I'm lucky, yeah. If I'm lucky. Yeah. <laughs> so it seems like, you know, softball, suburban growing up, it's the same way I grew up. And obviously nothing wrong with that, but it's not the, the typical route that you see uh, usually that, you know, you funnel, you get a job out of school, you live the nine to five, 
and go from there and kind of follow the system. And you seem to be on that same path too from when we were talking before you you went to Dayton for a major in education, but then slowly started to um, experience things that started to change your thoughts and direction of where you wanted to go. Uh, one of that was your travel and studying abroad to Germany. What made you decide to start education major and then all of a sudden take this trip and then start to switch directions in school? Yeah, I come from a family of teachers. My mom's a teacher, my aunt's a teacher, my grandparents were teachers or farmers. And I think it was, I didn't know what else I wanted to do. And so I started out, you know, in education and I did a, like a practicum in a second grade classroom and started questioning, like, is this really what I want to spend my time doing? I'm not sure about the, the second graders. And, and what then were the I second think, graders doing? What was wrong? Were they just, just being crazy? They're just being second graders. And I just, it wasn't grabbing my heart and soul. Like, is this, is this really what I want to be nice about it? You can say they were crazy. They're crazy little second graders. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I started thinking about what, what classes, you know, like many college students, I think most people don't really know exactly what they want to do. And I'm not going to encourage my kids to think they know that going in, you know, to kind of do some soul searching and figure out what, what they're passionate about. And I was really, really enjoying my political science and history and particularly my language class, which was German simply because I'd studied it in high school, which is not practical for me, but maybe <laughs> practical for you. Um, yeah, I wish I'd studied German. That would have uh, really helped me out instead of just winging it. But we'll find out. So you did. So that was kind of the basis of your decision, though. You, yeah. You were doing a language class in in German, and that's what sparked. Okay, well, maybe Germany is the right place to go. Yeah, and then this opportunity came up to study abroad, and I was so excited. And I also did this model United Nations program in college, and got to go to New York twice to be in the UN and have a mock experience and. You know, and I was excited about that. So I thought, well, these are the things I like. So anyway, I went abroad and what was the most... abroad experience going across? Because if you grew up like me, you know, I, I didn't get to go over Europe till much later. And that first trip being on the plane was such like a monumental, but kind of like scary, scary in a good way feeling. But you were going to live there and study there. And what was, was... What was going through your head on the plane? <laughs> You know, I don't remember being afraid. The only time I remember, I, I went abroad a few years ago, we're jumping way forward, um, and went to a refugee camp. And that circumstance was, you know, it was a little less safe than going to Western Europe, which was still West Germany at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I wasn't afraid. Um, and I was with some other, you know, kids that I knew from school, and then our German professor was going too, so... I think I was just, you know, just this kid from Dayton who was excited to explore the world a little more. And um, and my mom sent me off with a, just call me if something goes wrong, you know, so she certainly <laughs> didn't plant any any kind of fear. So, yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. So I got there and my room wasn't ready and there was this Serbian couple who were also studying at this language institute and they took me in and were kind of my 
my parents for the day and um, I didn't speak Serbo-Croatian and they didn't speak English. So we just kind of muddled oh, through so in our you, German yeah, and yeah, you couldn't, found a uh, common, you couldn't even common talk bond. to each other. No, yeah, you found a common bond because you couldn't speak to each other. Yeah. Um, I could, I can just picture <laughs> you and your, the, your Serbian friends trying to talk in German. That's just a hilarious thought to me. <laughs> yeah, it was like a first grade conversation. So it was back to second grade, I guess. Yeah, we're having so it like comes second full grade circle. language. Yeah. Is that? Did you try to? Um, I always like people's cultural charade stories, or where you have to talk with your hands, or what was a, a really funny conversation, if you remember, of like trying to communicate but not knowing the words. Oh, I don't remember, but I do that all the time now, still with clients. I mean, and really, it's kind of back to simplifying language so that you're speaking to someone, you know, not using the vocabulary you might use with a native English speaker. So that when I'm speaking with, you know, maybe a Somali client who's newly arrived, it's trying to simplify your language so that you're using words they might might know. So it's, yeah, back to that basic vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, cultural charades always crack me up because when you're in the moment, it's uh, when I always forget the word, I talk with my hands. So my hands uh-huh. will go all over the place and I'll catch myself like in the middle and have people just wide eyed staring at me like, what are you? <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> I have no idea. So seems like you had a really good time in Germany. Would, when coming back, um, what changed after that trip, would you say? So in my classes, most of the other students were Africans. And they were uh, their governments had sent them to learn German for like trades purposes. For, they were in like technical jobs, so they need to learn German. And that was really eye-opening. Um, you know, there are people from all over Africa there. And, and I, I'm not sure I had ever met a, an African ever. I mean, obviously African-Americans in, in my school, but mm-hmm. uh, so it was, it was wonderful. And they were so welcoming. And they did talk about, you know, some exploitation and problems that were going on there, but they treated me just so, you know, so with such kindness. And so I was really intrigued by, you know, the people I'd met. And I think then when I came back from Germany, it was solidified for me that I wanted to do something in this international studies realm and um, do something with people from other cultures. Yeah. And that sent you on to trajectory you are now. But why? Why law school? So you went to OSU next. Your next set was with the Buckeyes. Go Buckeyes. But with mm-hmm. law school. So what What was kind of the driving factor behind the, the choice of law? Yeah, I didn't know what, what in the world I wanted to do after college. I had thought, well, maybe I should go work for the UN. But practically speaking, it's not like you can get out of college and go work for the UN. So I thought I'd get an advanced degree and I, you know, I was interested in language and the law has a lot to do with language. And, um, so sort of by default, you know, I, I ended up in law school and mm. even very early on, I knew that the traditional legal route was not what I was interested in. I, I did a program where, um, students would go to the homeless shelters to try to, you know, help residents with uh, legal advice through the Bar Association. And then I had clerked at Legal Aid and 
just found it very meaningful. So I knew I wanted to do some kind of public interest law um, mm-hmm. with my law, my law degree. And it actually had applied to go into the Peace Corps. So there I had all this education, undergrad and, and, and law Peace school. Corps. I'm going to the Peace Corps, but I wasn't actually qualified to do anything. Really? Um, other than teach English. And they had already extended so many uh, teaching positions that I would have to have waited for quite a while. And I had so much student loan debt, I needed to go work. So I gotcha. Uh, so they, they really didn't have a spot for, I guess, no. if you're learning U.S. law and then you go somewhere else, then maybe, right, maybe it is kind of nullified. Is it? It's not I have like no I, idea. I didn't have any, you know, medical training or um, couldn't help with drilling water wells or you know, agricultural experience or micro lending. I mean, I didn't have that background. So gotcha. but I didn't know English, but it, it just it wasn't <laughs> right. going to work out for um, for, you know, I needed to get going on my <laughs> student loan debt. So uh, the bane of every college student's existence, the yes. dreaded student loan debt. Uh, but it it sounds like you had this idea kind of brewing in your head too. You, like you said, you wanted to go into law, but it's not the very traditional law. You wanted to go and do something for the public or for the people. But it's not kind of where it started. You, it seems like when we were talking before that you know you had to pay off those student loan debts somehow. That you had to go and work for a couple of years. So you started with family law, which is good and works later for the state, but what what was that period of your life like? So you just got out of school, you kind of have this idea brewing your head, but you kind of have to put that on hold for a while and go work to work down these loans. What was what was that time of your life looking at like, and where were you at? Yeah, I guess in hindsight, I mean, I regret that I had so much debt that I had to take a job, not that was. Um, that I wasn't passionate about, but that was practical that I needed to, to start paying off, you know, loans. Um, so that it took me a number of years to get where I really wanted to be and, you know, get into my current trajectory with Chris. Um, but you know, you learn something from every experience. And even though family law was definitely not for me and law firm life was not for me, I don't, you know, regret having done that. Um, I, you know, then I worked at the state and again, I had a, a, a great group of people I worked with. The pay was fine, but it really, I wasn't, uh, wasn't feeling fulfilled. And so I, and this is a key fact. My mother sent out a like Christmas letter and she said, well, Angie works for the state department of, I forget what she said, human services and she does contract negotiations i'm like no that's wrong <laughs> but but it, i thought it doesn't matter it might as well be it wasn't something that i was proud of you know in the same way if my mother sent out a letter saying well angie got to help 50 families reunite this year you know something that that i would be proud of that she would be proud of so Gotcha. So it was this Christmas card. It was, was my that, mother. It was your mom <laughs> that yeah. broke it, that broke it all. It is kind of funny how, because I kind of went through the same experience and you're working and same thing, great, working with great people, working for great pay. Um, it's It was a job that, you know, was 
well respected, but at the same time, it just something was like building, like yeah. building inside you. Was that something that you kind of felt where it seems like you have everything that you've wanted and worked for in school, but then there was just something missing. And was it that Christmas card? Was there any other experiences too that really kind of like crap? You know what? That's right. I'm, I'm missing something. Well, I think I knew I was feeling empty. And I remember specifically, you know, so I was looking for some volunteer thing to do. And I, I saw this newspaper article about this lawyer volunteering for this fledgling refugee group, which was, was Chris. And, you know, so I'd called and asked if I could volunteer. And they said, sure. I said, I don't know anything about immigration law, but I could learn. And so I went and it was phenomenal. But I remember very specifically, I I had this great boss. I told her, uh, Chris, Chris got some money so that I could um, take a part-time job doing mm. legal services there. But I needed, still needed the health insurance from the state. And at the time, I wasn't married and didn't have kids. So um, I told my boss, you know, I think this is something I'm really meant to do. But I, I need this job. Too. And she's like, mm -hmm. all right, well, let's cut your hours back at the state. So I worked 30 hours at the state and then 20 hours at Chris. You know, it was possible at that time because I didn't have other, you know, responsibilities. Right. So anyway, I'm talking to a supervisory guy at the state and he's talking to me about a promotion because I'm thinking about leaving the state. And he mm. said, you can really have an impact on the state's workforce. You can write these manuals and pass important policy. And I had just come from Chris where I'd been mm. with a, a woman who needed to get to have chemo done. And she didn't want to do it until her daughter came. And I had the ability to help make that happen. And that was pretty profound. So it was that was another pivotal moment where you think, What's the best use of my time? Yeah, I, for I think I'm with everyone listening out there that the scales are slightly tipped in favor of Chris. Yeah, just slightly. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. What an amazing story. But what getting started too in Chris was it? Did they just need the help that much? How quick was that conversation? Like, you know, I, I'm I'm still need to learn what this is, but they're like, sure, come on. What was that conversation like? Well, the the volunteering was immediate, um, and then I started actually working there about six months later, mm, and wow. there was there was a retired immigration lawyer who was there, so he was kind of showing me the ropes. Um, it was. All these people around a conference table it was a small little garage and one computer that kind of worked. So we're all sort of climbing over each other to get the computer. But it was fantastic because the energy there and the goodwill. And there are still two people who were there at that time are still working for Chris now, in addition to me. They were there before me. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, really, the the person who founded it, a woman named Jane McGrew, I don't know if I would have ever had the courage to found the organization, you know, if had it not been for Jane. And she was really my partner for many years. Um, mm. She was this outstanding human being. And um, with her help, you know, and the way I became director was kind of we're all looking around the table and our original director, Kam Singh, he, he said, uh, I think all these complicated federal grants, I'm ready to 
just go on senior status. Gotcha. And so it was a conversation. Well, who wants to be director? And I said, well, I'll do it for a little while if Jane will help me. And that was in 2003. <laughs> and then one thing led to another. And yeah. here I am. Still, still are. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was, um, it was kind of a, just a tradi- like a transition. You had to negotiate with your old job. But it seems almost a little seamless, surprisingly, of how it, it, everything kind of just fell into place. Is that true? Or yeah, was, there, was it kind of really, more sidewinding? Or? No, that. that piece of it is really true you know it was six months volunteering then let's see that was probably july of 99 so then i did the the two job stint for a while and then actually it was when i got married um it was when we became a resettlement agency for church world service in 2001 that i was able to quit my state job because then chris had enough funding so then i i started the resettlement program at Chris in 2001. And then I quit the state job and didn't look back. How was that? What was your feeling walking out of your job for the first time? Because this is something that I literally did two days ago. But was it um, relief? Holy crap, I'm doing this. What was uh, like when you finally got the funding and everything started to come together? What was that day like? Maybe it was easier because I'd had this kind of transition to sort of like half half and half, you know, half mm-hmm. of the state so that it was, but I, I knew what I was leaving behind the security and the benefits and all of that, but never had any doubt that that's, that was a good move for me. It is really funny how when you start getting into the game, you found what you want to do, you found an organization you want to run, things just started to kind of fall into place. Yeah, really. Um, and Certainly a key is the good people that were around me, you know, the Jane I mentioned and others um, at Chris were just these fantastic people. I mean, they're people you want to surround yourself with. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, makes a difference, too. And, and I, I liked my coworkers a lot at the state, but this was a whole new level of people that I admired and respected. Right. So then so then you. You, you dropped the state job. You're finally working for Chris. And the, this is what, correct me if I'm mistaken, but this is where you call the garage days. So oh, it's yes. Kind of the, I'm nostalgic. The old, yeah. yeah, the nostalgic uh, building out of your garage, uh, like typical in entrepreneurship story where it, this is where the re, this is like the real thing happened. You had one computer for all of you. So what was what was the typical day? So you dropped your state job. You're, walk, you're walking into Chris. And you're walking into the garage, like, what's happening? Like, looking around, like, what's happening? Oh, God, there's, like, paper everywhere. There's a couple clients. <laughs> there's different languages being spoken. There are, like, several Somalis, a Mauritanian, Ethiopian, a Spanish speaker. I mean, it was fabulous. <laughs> fabulous. So there was, um, it was, like, happy chaos. Almost. Yes, exactly. It makes me cranky now when someone, you know, now we have an office and, when people are cranky about the internet being down or something. I was like, let me tell you a little yes, something I'm about like the old, old days. Grandma, let me tell you when I was a kid, I had to walk to school or yeah. <laughs> we had one computer and we all had to fight for it. Was there any, it seems like a really happy time. This was kind of a nostalgic time where 
it seems like everything was happy, different languages. You seemed to finally feel your, fit your stride or find your stride. That's the right word. Was there any times that really stick out to you as kind of like a best or a sum, sum up of that moment or those garage days? Yes. There was a client, um, the first certainly Mauritanian I ever met, and uh, he needed help with an asylum application. And I had a lot of good guidance on how to do this application. But I got to spend – he was um, didn't drive a car. So the great thing about those days, I went to his home, drove him to the office, got to really know this person and his story and the circumstances. You know, who knew anything about the Pular from Mauritania? You know, I certainly didn't. Mm-hmm. And – Eventually, and I worked so hard on that case, and he got his asylum, and he's now here in Columbus. He actually is a teacher. Um, and Wow, that's awesome. I, I really enjoyed the – the challenge when you start resettling a large number of people is it starts to feel more like a like a, a assembly line. And I like getting to know the individual people and their individual stories. And so I still do a fair amount of direct representation because it keeps me fulfilled. You know, there's mm-hmm. plenty of time that I could be spending on budgets and all that kind of stuff that I that I should be doing probably more of. More, you know, the administrative time could fill up my plate completely. Right. But but I think it keeps me engaged and. And then I still know what's happening on the ground because I'm still talking to people. That's how I try to justify the right. fact that I'm still doing direct services. But I think it's it's important for me personally um, to continue to do that kind of direct direct service I gotcha. stuff. Did you get to tell him in person when? Yeah. What was yeah. that moment like? Was it's, when you handed over the papers? It's magical. Um, yeah, I've. I, had, I would be crying. I would be an absolute mess. Well, I haven't. I have not um, lost an asylum case. I don't do them. I don't do asylum cases anymore because they are so time intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another reason to stop because I haven't. I haven't had one denied, which would, would be <laughs> devastating. You got a perfect record. So I'm just going to stop amazing. there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, because it was the first one that I did, I I, I remember it very fondly. Was he just like what was uh what did his face like what was his reaction? Oh, in the early days, he he used to call me all the time, just with such gratitude. Um, and to see him progress from being like when I first drove him to the office, he was afraid to ride in a car, and it was fascinating to me. This man was very intelligent, um, mm. but but his experiences had been so different. You know, he'd. Rarely right. ridden in a vehicle, let alone driven one, and and to see where he is now, you know, he's fully s- successful, self-sufficient person. Oh, that's so amazing! Like we like we talked about before before we hit record on the on the episode. There's also some downtimes. It's not always the easiest job in the world. It, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that go to it, a lot of moving parts, and part of what we talked about was the the political climate and this being really one of the harder times in your career around the the last six months since the Trump administration has taken over. So what what has has changed, and has the dynamic of the company changed, uh, and how are you guys 
battling through and what are the major challenges you're facing? Yeah, so the the constant state of uncertainty is really challenging. Um, you know, first and foremost, the uncertainty for the the people that we work with about when, if and when they're going to see their family members. I mean, that's a paramount. That that's what hit me the hardest is thinking of the people that I have to sit across the desk from and explain. I don't know when your child's coming. I don't know if he'll be coming in the next year, two years. We don't know when. You know. So, so that's awful from a everyday trudge, you know, people catching me in the parking lot on the way to my car, you know, what's happening with my, my case. Um, so that's a struggle. But then the financially, because resettlement agencies are paid based on the number of arrivals and, you know, you make plans, you hire staff that speak certain languages based on the, you know, the plan. There's a plan that was put in place way before the beginning of the fiscal year. And then to have suddenly the notion of no arrivals um, for four months or six months or whatever it was, you know, going to ultimately be, mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, we had to lay off staff. Then it creates uncertainty for everybody. You know, think of you at, right. with an employer not knowing, like, is this place going to exist tomorrow? And right. so, so that's, we have, you know, incredibly dedicated people who have been riding out the storm with us Um so, but there's some pretty, pretty dark days, uh, during the past six months once the travel ban, you know, and, and, and now, even now, there's still so much uncertainty as it's pinging back and forth between the Supreme Court. I've heard the Court of Appeals may even tomorrow, um, address this issue of whether a resettlement agency is actually considered an entity so that refugees with a relationship with us would be exempt from the travel ban. And that's mm-hmm. significant because about a third of our cases are those kinds of people. And they're the most vulnerable people because they don't have a U.S. relative who can send them a remittance to help pay for food. Right. You know, those are the people who've been stuck in a camp. We had a family of 10 that was supposed to arrive right before the cutoff. And the wife had had a stroke. There were these kids that had all been born in a refugee camp. So they'd been in that camp for at least 20 years. And their flight was canceled because somebody's medical exam expired. And so they didn't make it in before the deadline. And they don't have a U.S. relative. So they're out right now. Wow. And imagine that. I I can't. I can't imagine that. No, you can't. Uh, and, and so it was so disheartening and morally bankrupt that the Supreme Court decision said, well, you know, students who have an offer from a university or uh, employees who have an offer from an employer, that's a sufficient enough connection to the U.S. that they should be allowed in. But not the people mm-hmm. that are refugees who we've been working with for years who have what's called an assurance. So that's this point in the process. They've already been cleared by Homeland Security. They've had multiple interviews. We've agreed to take them. This family of 10 I mentioned, we had already put money down to to secure their apartment. And and so but according to the the latest decision, they they don't have a sufficient enough relationship with us. I mean, that's how the administration was saying, nope, not resettlement agencies. They don't qualify as an entity for this purpose. Supreme Court just kicked it back to the Court of Appeals. But they were so willing to say a student qualifies, but not but not a refugee. So it's that's that's discouraging. 
Mm. Um, for those of us who are, you know, sitting across from people puzzled about why don't why don't we care about this? Why doesn't it matter that that family is getting sent back to the refugee camp? You know, and I talk to parents who are worried they've been waiting four years. We've done DNA testing. I mean, there's no question about the relationship. But because this process has been stalled, their kids who was maybe 12 when they filed is now 16 and talking about going to Libya and getting on a boat to try to cross the Mediterranean because they're not seeing progress. That's the kind of stuff parents have to worry about because of this delay. It's insanity. It, it's something that it's not even imaginable for me. And you mentioned that you actually went to a camp not too long ago. And what was that like? It was, and that's what I say. Anybody who thinks it's okay for people to wait even three months, four months, whatever, you can you imagine? I your average American could not stand a week living in a refugee camp. There's you know only electricity for a certain period of time. There's, you know, not necessarily running water. In a lot of these places, there are food rations, and when they run out, that's it. Unless you have a relative sending you money to get mm -hmm. something else, you you know, you may have to wait a few days. Um, it's it's the rudimentary, like the one I went to was, was actually probably a nicer camp, but it was in rural Uganda um, near the Rwandan border, um, a place called Naka Valley. And about 50,000 people there. They had a clinic that was about the size of... 50,000? 50, 50,000. That's the size of Ohio State. Right, that's it's no a city. Small, their, the, it's a city. Their hospital was the size of the, the Chris Garage in the old days, you know, for 50,000 people. Um, so don't get sick. And, and, you know, there was a Congolese family there of probably eight people living in a, again, in a home the size of the Chris garage, you know, all of them. So, you know, why, why we think that's okay that people live like that. And the typical refugee experience is sitting around waiting and waiting and, and waiting. It's not like I think people have portrayed it as if people wash up on the U S shores and, and then, you know, we don't know who they are. I mean, they've gone through this extensive vetting and security process, you know, that long before they ever come here mm -hmm. and you said that some of the kids were or all of the kids of, of this family were born in the camps and that yeah. lasted for 20 years the, so they're sitting and waiting for 20 years this family the kids ranged i think between six and 20 and the 20 year old wow. had been born there in dadab camp and so i don't know when the parents went there but the kids um all the children were born there. So that's been their life. And we offer, you know, we put out this hope because the U.S. has historically been, has been that beacon of hope. And it's part of our foreign policy to just, you know, have to be that generous nation to, you know, help people start over. And, you know, and they come here and they contribute. And for refugees, it takes, it may take to the second generation you know, but those kids will go to college and, you know, the, the, the parent who comes over may not advance much economically. They'll work hard, um, but then it's their kids who go to college and really start to give back. We did an economic impact study and, you know, refugees are two times more likely to start businesses than the average population. 
and they pay taxes. They contribute to the local economy um, significantly. And these people are just, I mean, yeah, once you start to get into the data, too, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it seems like the whole situation is wrapped in this blanket of uncertainty. Yeah. The the refugees are uncertain. The families over here are uncertain. Organizations like you are trying to help are uncertain because it's like this cloud, this fog that makes the whole process murky and hard to trudge through to the point where they're thinking about hopping boats across the sea, Mediterranean Sea, that's... When they give it's up hard hope, pill to swallow because yeah, exactly. They it's a, it's a sign of, well, this isn't working. Let's we have to do something though. Well, and we've we've put the system out there for, you know, I think of my um, a client named Muna, and we resettled Muna and her husband and their young daughter in 2013, and um, the husband had a, a health condition, so Muna had to carry the load. She had two hotel how housekeeping jobs a husband died Muna had two children that were left behind so she filed for them two months after she arrived I mean she was on it so we filed the application for her other two kids that were from a a prior marriage Mm -hmm. and one of them has cerebral palsy Um, so it's brother sister pair and we've done DNA testing they've been interviewed and it's stuck because one of them is a Somali male, and you know now he's his security clearance hasn't cleared. I mean they've been stuck in Ethiopia in you know refugee life their whole life. Well, I mean since they were really young, and Muna is in all the time. She was hospitalized because of this like high blood pressure stress, worrying about her kids. And that's just one example of of many. You know I have another client, a woman named Amina, who's got a child who's just turning five. And we've been, you know, working, working, working to get him here. He has a DNA appointment, I think, August the 1st, actually. He's in Nairobi. Amina's here. Um, Mm -hmm. She's gotten a travel document. She's just going to go and try to help him out. And, you know, I was initially worried that she wouldn't be able to get back in. I think things are settled enough that she would still be fine to be readmitted, but she has two other little children here, so it's she can't just go out and help the five-year-old and you know right. leave the other two if there's a risk that she can't get back in. I can imagine that as a parent and especially a mother. I mean, you're you're a mom of of two kids, and could you imagine having one in the U.S. and one across the ocean and not being able to join them together? I mean, what would go through your head during that situation it's, if it was your own kids? I can't imagine it. And I know the parents who have had to make choices that I, you know, by the grace of God, will never have to make when they decide. And there's so many reasons things happen that the family doesn't stay intact. So one example, a woman, a Somali woman I know, uh, they were all in the camp in Ethiopia the camp was doing a census where they count everyone. So she's in line with some of her kids and one of her kids is back with grandma and they try to get in mm-hmm. line and the soldiers won't let them come up with the rest of the group. So this mother tells the people who are making the list, you know, I have another child, but she's, you know, in the back of the line. Oh, okay. Well, we'll add that child later. And when later comes, they can't add that child. And people are terrified that not having 
that, that any kind of delay will prevent them from coming, which is a realistic fear. So, you know, I can't imagine telling my my child, I'm sorry, we're going to have to leave you behind. The rest of us are going to go. And when we get there, you know, we'll file for you and we'll try. And that turns into three and four years. And so what that does for the like the psyche of wow. a child and what that does to the family, but they're stuck making these decisions. I mean, you and I won't have to make these decisions. I, I miss my kids when they're at camp. You know, I can't right. imagine not being able to make sure they're safe. You know, sometimes like in Amina's case, she left them with a relative who then had an opportunity to uh, migrate to Europe. So that person goes and she's got to find somebody to take care of her kid, you know, so the kid could bounce around from caretaker to caretaker. Just awful. And you said for years, this could go on for years. Yeah. In the, in the case of the, the other family, the kid was born for in statement camp for 20 years. Yeah. So one minor mistake can turn into separation of families for years. It's incredible. That's the reality. That's incredible. Uh, it's a, it is a, it is a terrible and terrifying reality that this is not only happening right now, but is not, um, at the forefront. And it's, I think it's really hard because we get distracted in everyday life here in the U S and it's not something that's really broadcasted. And that's why you got to thank Chris for doing the good work that, that you guys are doing to help families get reunited and, as we we're talking before, too, there is um, there are cases that go through and work, and that's what makes this all worth it. And you said one of your favorite parts of the job was going to the airport and seeing that reunion. Was there one that really sticks out in your mind? Can you take us there and what you were feeling and what the scene was like when it actually was a reunion? That oh my gosh, one of the one of the ones that I. I had been working on these these four kids for a long time, and their mom was here. And, of course, they're arriving while I'm on vacation. So I right. I got a, a, a good friend who's a videographer to go, and he took some, some footage for me. And one of my staff members went. And then she, mom, she called me as soon as they arrived, and we cried on the phone together. It was spectacular she's actually one in the tedx in the video okay yeah and for all the listeners out there we'll post a tedx video in the show description so make sure to check that out they have some great stories but and an- another one oh this one um eritrean woman um she hadn't seen her uh shit um four kids who were coming she hadn't seen her kids in seven years and her daughter was only two at the time that she had to flee. Uh, so we had to do DNA testing, which is complicated to accomplish when the children are in this remote camp in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. So when they're finally scheduled to arrive, I was at the airport and there she stood with flowers. And so we see the kids coming because they're carrying their there's bags that all refugees carry from IOM, the uh, transportation right. and she gets mm-hmm. sight of them and she busts through security. She just goes running towards them. <laughs> she sets off the alarm. The kids are running towards her. It was priceless. 
Uh, I wish then I wish I'd had a videographer there, but I got some I got some cell phone pictures. But we, you know, we all cried and they invited my family to come. So we had a wonderful dinner together. And my daughter is uh, actually from Ethiopia. So and she's about the same age as the daughter in this case. So, you know, that hits home, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was just the, the side of almost pure joy where nothing else matters, busting through security. Yes. It's like probably people rushing after her, trying to grab her, like, heck no, I, I, I'm i getting to my kids. The, the security <laughs> people were actually pretty cool about it. They were, they, they could, they figured out what was happening, but that was, okay. that was phenomenal. So any of those opportunities, you know, where all these paper that I've been working on for, you know, years turns into these beautiful people and, um, that's when I know all the headaches with the budgets and the political climate and all of that. It's worth it to deal with that just to be there at the airport to, to see this happen. Yeah. Cause at the end of the day, we're all people. Yeah. We're all humans just trying to survive and live a good life. You know, I really uh, appreciate getting the chance to talk to you because it, you're on the front lines and, helping these families reunite and that's something that you should be really proud of yeah thank you um and for the rest of us though it's a, it's hard obviously in life to to drop everything and help out but there's obviously some things that we can do um so in your eyes being in the field and being on the front lines of getting people over here what can say me who you know was working in engineering <clears throat> has a nine to five job, but wants to help out in some way. What, what, what can we do to help the cause? Currently, one of the most important things is advocacy and contacting elected officials to, you know, simply but strongly support the refugee program because it's the, the existence of refugee resettlement in this country is, um, is under threat. And so we really need people to say that, you know, our values are to help the world's most vulnerable people, that this is an American tradition that we think it's important to continue. And we want our legislature to continue to support this program. So advocacy and we have lots of materials and things, uh, but it's, it's as simple as making those phone calls and saying simply, I want you, Senator to continue to support the refugee program and to hold the administration accountable and make sure it's not dismantled because this is important to me that that's, this is what my country is about. I think any opportunities people have to interact with refugees and to help share their stories with, you know, all the fence sitters out there who I think once they have an opportunity to, to meet someone and to see, gosh, this person's really a lot like me. They just want their, their kids to do well in school. They want to live in a safe place. Um, they want to work really hard. Um, so we can provide opportunities to be a welcome team. You know, we have uh, in in home tutoring. You know, helping helping that Iraqi father who you know feels ashamed that he can't uh, help his second grader with homework. You know, get to a point where you know his language skills have improved so that he can be the kind of parent he wants to be. You know, helping, you know, the stay-at-home mom, helping her have an outing, you know, so she can get out of the house mm-hmm. or, 
you know, taking somebody to the zoo or whatever. I mean, there's lots of opportunities just to be a, a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and mentoring, we have mentorship programs, connecting community members to refugee youth, you know, trying to show them what the possibilities are. But I think anytime somebody can be an ambassador to their family when you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table to say, well, you know, I, I think, you know, I disagree with your view. I don't, I don't understand why you think this person is is such a threat. And let me tell you actually what their experience has been like. And gosh, Muhammad is actually a pretty nice guy who has the same, you know, same kind of interests and that I do, or, you know, so try to being that ambassador. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a great message. And because I feel like all change just start on the ground in micro actions. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you have to drop everything and go work in a field camp out, out in a refugee camp or anything like that. It could be as much as helping your neighbor. And I love that message. I love it so much because it's just, it rehumanitizes people that seem to have been dehumanized. And that is what I love about your organization. That's what I heard from Alex, who we've had on the show before, and what he said about mentoring some Somali students that um, come over here and have helped them play soccer. It's, it's those little things can help broaden your horizons, just like your trip to Germany, just like my trip to Germany, and just help round not only or just help round you into a better person, as well as helping something that you know has gone too long unnoticed yeah um i do want to say that as as dark as the last six months have been there have been some really bright spots and the silver lining has been the way the community has stepped up to support us in everything from people like baking cookies bringing them into the office saying we support what you're doing or sending flowers or um the amount of money we were able to raise just to keep making sure that we could support the families that are here because we'd already, you know, we have 500 people that have arrived. So the number of people who we had no connection with who had, you know, fundraiser at land grants or at the kitchen, just people who were stirred to do something. We had this awesome project called the Columbus Crossing Borders Project where a group of artists got together, like 30, and um, were inspired by refugee stories and did their own individual paintings. And now there's a film documentary that's happening August 10th at the Drexel. But just seeing p- people became energized. And that, that's that been a beautiful thing because there were days it's hard to get up and keep going with all the uncertainty and just feeling like, how is this happening? To know that there's still a lot of people out there you know, patty cake bakery that had an event for us that the line was out the door and around the corner, people trying to, you know, just do their part to support their values and to say, what well, you know, I, I don't agree with the way this is going. You know, I'm, I'm speaking up and stepping out. I love it, Columbus. I love it. Columbus is great. great Columbus city. is great. Oh, way to step up. And yeah, once again, even even if it's a couple flowers sending sending to your new refugee neighbors or um saying hi on the street or even helping your your neighbors 
second grade child do their homework. Every everything helps, and I think that's a a fantastic fantastic message that we can't forget. That nothing 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 is too small to help the cause. And Angie, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your story and really really doing something that needs to be done and following your calling. That's well, I'm, I know I'm the, lucky. I mean, personally, I feel lucky that I get to spend my time doing what I do. You know, it's not easy, but uh, gosh, it's it's a dream job for me. And so, you know, I feel very grateful that I've been able to, you know, to do this with a lot of help from a lot of really great people because the Chris staff are an amazing group of people that, you know, put the wind in my sails every day. So... Yeah, yeah. Lucky, but, but but thank you. It's nice to be recognized. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. And for all you listeners out there, support Chris. It's C-R-I-S. Google it. It's a great organization. Any little thing can help. Of course, I know that I will definitely have a bigger role to play in my scheme and help support you guys and everything that you do. So check it out, C-R-I-S. Check out Angie on all the socials. That's Angie Plummer, P-L-U-M-M-E-R. And say hi. Say you support the cause. It's um, it's about time that we stepped up. Thank you, Angie, for coming on the show and sharing all this with me. This has been an absolute pleasure. And we will talk to you again soon. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been another episode of Oyster World Radio, a production of Oyster World LLC. I am your host. Nathan Lieberman, and thanks again to Angie Plummer for coming on the show. Learn more about Chris and check out Angie's TEDx talk in the show description or Googling Angie Plummer. To learn more about Oyster World, go to the Oyster Hub at OysterYourWorld.com. If you want to connect, don't be afraid to reach out. Follow and tweet me on Twitter at Nathan Oyster. Find us on Facebook by searching Oyster World. Follow me and my travels on Instagram, Nathan.Oyster. That's the best place to find me. For more, check out the links in the show description. And special thanks to Charlie Milken for the Oyster Jam. Check them out on Spotify or at charliemilken.com. That's M-I-L-L-I-K-I-N. Thanks again for tuning to Oyster World Radio. We'll be back in two weeks. But until then, this is Nathan Lieberman signing off. I can't take control of my life If I'm too busy looking at the stars And thinking about all time that's gone by It's time for a change in my day-to-day scene Time to turn around from that clock Face the mirror and change me